All right, thanks, guys. And good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Good to see you all. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Spence said, uh, thanks for coming today. If you're brand new to our church or uh, visiting, maybe you have been on Facebook for a bit or, and this is your first Sunday, whatever the case, uh, welcome. We are uh, in a series right now on big questions, um, which uh, some of you know, a lot of you know, we have done this a few times in our history and um, we've enjoyed doing this this summer for a couple of months. We'll wrap it up uh, Labor Day weekend, so a few weeks left where we're preaching questions you guys have asked us uh, for the most part. So a couple of these are ones we've added ourselves, uh, but today is uh, one of the ones uh, that uh, one of you have asked us, a question about theology or the gospel or the, or the Bible, something about our church maybe um, that we are, are uh, making into sermons and hopefully um, answering some of your questions too, whether they're, they're actually your questions or maybe some bunny trails uh, kind of come off of this and uh, answer some questions you've had too about some related things. Uh, so hopefully you've been enjoying this and getting something out of it uh, as well. It's been a lot of fun for us as pastors to know we're preaching questions that at least one of you is asking. So um, let's dive right in today. Today's question has to do with um, the Old Testament law. It's a question about um, practicality and applicability for Christians, New Testament Christians. So um, the uh, question kind of in concise form is if the law, so think the Old Testament moral law, is ended with Christ, we'll talk about that in a second, how do we still use it as Christians today? And this is the more expanded uh, series of questions we received. If the laws ended with Christ, how then should we talk about rights and wrongs? Does the fact that we are supposed to live a certain way mean that we are still under or guided by some type of moral law as Christians? Do we acknowledge an undercurrent of right and wrong that we're still called to uphold as the Spirit enables us? Uh, so a series of great questions here that, um, that all relate and kind of orbit around this idea of uh, how do you handle the law uh, when, you, when you come across it, when you read it, when you teach it maybe or preach it if you're a, if you're a leader, uh, but just as you read it and kind of ruminate on it as, as a Christian. So to try to kind of clarify this question a bit, uh, for those of you who are new to theology or the Bible, or maybe this is a question you've never even heard of before, it's not even on your radar at all, but also to expand on this question a bit, and it is a great question, I want to start with a couple of things. And the first thing is, I want to start, as the question does, with the presupposition that we are not under law. This is actually a direct quote from Romans, the book of Romans in the New Testament. We're not under law, but we're under grace. We're under the law of Christ, the Bible says elsewhere. And so under means uh, under the mediate, mediatory work of, of something, or, or the thing that has bearing on our life now is not the law, not the moral law, not the Ten Commandments. It doesn't have bearing anymore. But what has bearing is the fact that Jesus died for us. That has bearing. That's grace. We're under that idea of God graciously, undeservedly sending his son into the world to be punished and crushed, the Bible says, in our place. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. So we're starting off of that presupposition. To preach on that and to defend that would be a whole other sermon. And so, but the question, though, has to do with, if that's true, presupposing that's true, if we're under grace as a whole, how do we handle the law now when we read it? If we're in the New Testament now, how do you read these portions of the Old Testament? Can it guide us in any way? How do we read it now when we come across it? So now just to reason, uh, reason this through for a minute, on, on the one hand we can say and should and do, it's kind of impossible not to say this, but on the one hand we can say the law says don't hurt people and on the other hand the ability to keep that law is not sourced from within me. Those two things are not contradictory. We can acknowledge goodness and even pursue it 
but also say that ultimately goodness comes from God because he alone is good. Even Jesus says that himself in Mark 10. And remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about sin, the topic of sin, the question of what is sin, sin is in the heart more than the actions, which means that we can be doing good but still be sinning as we're doing good because we're trusting in the good to be to our credit before God. We're worshiping the self. We're declaring independence from him in the moment of doing the good. And so taking a selfie and bragging about cleaning up graffiti on East Lake Street is not impressing God. So morality limited to deeds is is an overly simplistic way to view the world. And the Bible speaks to this on many levels. It, It digs deeper into motives, into being good rather than just doing good. And being good is impossible for sinners like us. It, it's, it'll, it's easier to change our DNA than it is to change us from being evil into being good, ourselves. God can and does through his son, and we'll talk about that, but, but ourselves, that's, that's an impossibility. So after like wrestling through these series of questions, and there's so many directions this, this could go today, I, I think the best way to, to address it is to ask, how do we handle the law when we read it as Christians? Because understanding the difference here, and you see it kind of in the fifth line down on the left, Understanding the difference between being under the law and being guided by the law is crucial to arriving at the right answer because saying under and guided, those are not the same thing. And so I'm I'm glad it was asked this way because this kind of serves as a platform for us to kind of leap off of and say, well, what what do those two words and ideas mean biblically and and which one one is more uh, appropriate or important for us uh, to, uh, to cling to? today, especially as we ask and answer this, this question. So, so two angles today. We're going to look at how the New Testament addresses this question. And then two, I want to give an example of how to do this in an area where the New Testament might be silent. And I'll talk about that uh, secondarily here in a few minutes. But, but first, let's talk a little bit more about this question because we talked about the presupposition before, but this is something I know a lot of you are brand new to, or maybe it's just been a while since you've thought about it. And so what is the purpose of the law? And I want to read from 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11. This is a New Testament letter that Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy, an early church leader. Let's read in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine or teaching, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. All right, so this passage is really, really helpful in a lot of ways, but also kind of confusing. So let me just walk through it here. When he uses that phrase at the beginning, using the law lawfully, what he means is that that's linked with the idea of understanding that it was laid down for sinners like us. But, but the question remains, to what end? So that we might stop sinning? Like, was the law laid down for sinners so that they might use it to stop sinning? It's interesting here that it says it was not laid down for the righteous. It was not laid down for the just. This is important as Christians because we affirm, and we know this, that it is only in Christ that we are just. It's only in Christ that we are made righteous. It's only by his shed blood alone, substituting himself and itself 
for us. We, we wash ourselves in the river of, of his blood and grace, right? So we can take this two ways. This is why it's confusing because there's kind of two things going on here. Whether you're a Christian or not, the first one applies to you. The second one applies just if you're a Christian. But on the first level, the law was laid down for sinners like us, all of us, Christian or not, we all sin. And it was laid down to expose the wrong, to be a mirror, to show the, the, the smudges on our face, and more than that, on our soul. And yet, too, it's not laid down in the same way for Christians, who are the just, who are the righteous ones, made righteous in Christ. It continues its ministry of condemning and kind of laying low so we'd see our need for Christ but it also, for the Christian, takes a back seat to Jesus when we are saved. Romans 5 helps here. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, to make sin worse, essentially. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that sin as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the law then, we talk about the law, the moral law of the Old Testament especially, so think Ten Commandments, other moral laws as well. We think about their place in the story. The law can and does still serve this same Romans 5 purpose for Christians and non-Christians. It still plays a part in the story. But the Bible never says that when Jesus saves us, all of a sudden the law changes its job description and now all of a sudden, it doesn't increase sin anymore. Now it's keepable, and now it benefits us somehow. It never says that. Instead, it moves us from the former to the latter. It moves us from the old to the new. It moves us from the unkeepable to Christ, from law to grace, unto spirit-filled living, and from doing to believing, from the written code to Christ. Romans 7, 6 says to, to Christians, now we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the law or the old way of the written code. And so that just kind of begs the question, right? Well, what does that mean exactly? And are we doing that? Does our day-to-day does -day spirituality reflect this well? Or maybe not, maybe it doesn't. What do we think about? What motivates us? What do we ruminate on? Is Jesus still precious to us? Or have we gone backwards uh, to, to the old written code? So in one sense then, it, it can lead us to him, and in another sense, we leave it behind at the same time. And so it's really, it can be confusing, right? It's kind of a clear as mud uh, moment here when we talk uh, in theological terms this way. It's difficult. But the question might still remain, and, uh, something like, I, I hear all that, but is there still any enduring validity to it? Any guidance it can give us? Can it still help expose can the law still help expose right and wrong? And isn't that a good thing? And I think the answer to all of those questions is absolutely it can. But how we go about this is, is extremely important. Because there are bad ways to go about it this way or to answer that question, those further questions, and then there, there are more biblical good ways. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is uh, talk about and answer this, today's question uh, more from this angle. So, Preaching and reading the law in, in a biblical manner. So, the, the, again, the, the secondary question might be, how do these parts of the Bible speak to Christian living? At all, or if at all. And so, so what I want to do today to help give an example of this is preach one of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to preach the Eighth Commandment, 
which is from Exodus 20.15, which just says simply, God says this to Moses first and then to all, all Israel, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. So, so again, if you guys were reading that, and maybe you guys haven't before, but just say you are, and you're maybe reading through the Bible or something cover to cover, or just kind of happen to be reading this in your Bible, what do you do with this? How do you read this in a Christian way, in a biblical way? How do you read this as though it's a part of the story? Like this law is never repeated in the New Testament, interestingly enough. So does that have bearing at all? Should it have bearing at all uh, on, our, on our lives? Is everything kind of created equal when it comes to the Bible? Or are there peaks and valleys and contrasts? These are all important questions. So here's how I would do it, especially under, underneath the idea, remember, that the Bible says if you're a Christian, when, when we become Christians, if you are today, you are no longer under this law. You're not under do not steal. You're under grace. So then, how do we read it then if that's the case? What does it mean? Can it guide it all? The first question, and I, so I have three questions I would ask. This is how I'd walk through it. It's not an exhaustive way to do it, but it, it covers the big things. I have three questions, a what question, a why question, and a how question. So the first question is, when you come to something like this, is uh, I think to ask, well, first of all, what is stealing? Because we shouldn't assume that we totally know. And, and a fuller definition might help us in this process of the law lawfully. So stealing definitionally, which is pretty simple, so no tricks here or anything, it's just, it is to take Stealing is to take someone else's stuff. It's to take their property without permission or legal right. This is a basic dif dictionary definition here. Without intending to return it. And many of us have maybe done this or thought about it at least. We've shoplifted. We've taken someone's things. We have not returned them. But coveting, this is where it gets kind of dialed up a bit. Coveting, which is another one of the Ten Commandments. God says, you, you shall not covet. Covet means uh, to want someone else's stuff. So coveting is the heart side of stealing. So there's shoplifting and there's wanting to shoplift. There's taking your friend's stuff, your neighbor's stuff, and then there's wanting to do it or wanting their things. That's coveting. It's right alongside stealing in the Bible. We actually know that G Jesus makes a big deal of this whole idea of heart sins some of you guys know this in like Matthew 5 and 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says that heart sins are just as bad as body sins. And so, you know, you may not make a habit of shoplifting or looting, but you have coveted. And so you're and I, we're just as bad. You know, like have we ever wanted someone's home or someone's job or someone's life circumstance or someone's fertility or someone's car? Have you ever wanted someone's stuff? All of us are thieves. In the truest biblical definition of the term, all of us are robbers. All of us have stolen. All of us are thieves. And so again, this is starting to do kind of a Romans 5 thing, isn't it? The law makes sin bigger and more unclimbable or insurmountable. The second question relates, and it is, why is it wrong? The first question is, what is it? The second is asking a, a, a better question, a deeper question. Why is it wrong? Four quick things here. One, because God says it is. And that should be enough, uh, but there's more to say, and that's, that's good too. So the, the second thing is, 
It's selfish. Stealing says, I'm more important than you, which is the same thing as hate, which is the antithesis of love, which is the antithesis, hard word, of God himself, who is love. Third, uh, stealing is distrust in God. Stealing says, you're not enough for me. I I need other things. I'm not, it's not sufficient to wait for you to give to me and to be okay with what you give me, even if it's less in life. I need more. I don't trust you. I don't trust you. I'm a better God than you are. And so I need to go and acquire more things for myself, even if it's, even if it's illegally doing so and against your will and, and your desires and your commandments. I need to take things in, into my own hands because you're not doing enough. Just different ways of saying this, right? Self, it's, it is selfish and it's, it's a distrust in God uh, type thing. And then related to that, uh, stealing is epitomized ultimately uh, when human beings, and the Bible speaks to this all over the place, steal from God. They, they steal, we, we have stolen God's glory. And, and we do that when we think or live arrogantly. When we want the spotlight on us instead of him. So stealing is a form of pride, really. It's, it's like the person who perpetually takes credit for other people's work. No one likes that guy, right? Well, we are that guy. We've done that a thousand times to God. We've ripped him off. And we've put the spotlight on ourselves and worshipped ourselves rather than worshipping the, the, the glory that comes from him, the Bible says in, in the New Testament. Okay, so we could have spent more time on that. Uh, there's lots more to say about it. And again, it's not, it's not, um, it's not, that's not a comprehensive look necessarily, but those are the big things. If we start there, asking the what and then the why, um, if, if we were to stop there, so the wrong way to preach this passage, the wrong, unbiblical, non-Christian way to preach the passage stops right there and says, do not steal, God said it, go do it, or go don't do it. That, that's, that's, that's the wrong way to preach it. But the right way to preach it keeps going past the first two questions and asks deeper questions, more Jesus-related questions. So it, it asks it reads the New Testament kind of back into the old, like Jesus himself does and Paul does. It asks, how are even these laws preparatory for him? It kind of starts to take ourselves out of the equation. So we use it as a mirror. It brings us low. It increases transgression, like Romans 5 says, so we'd run to him. But then, but then what does that really mean? How does he complete the law? How does he fulfill it? Like he fulfills everything. Everything in the Old Testament's about him including Exodus 20:15. So the third question then is quite simply that. How does this law lead us to Jesus? How does you shall not steal lead us to him? That's the best question. That's the better question. The first two are important. They're preparatory. This is the better place to land. The first answer to this, I have three kind of branches off of this uh, answer. Uh, the first we've kind of already been talking about, but I want to go back to this for clarity. And that is, it leads us to Jesus through guilt and need for deliverance. So when we read this commandment, this eighth commandment in context, and we see that Israel, the first recipients of the law, certainly could never truly keep it, and and they uh, faced judgment for it, and all the laws were that way for them. 
And then we get to the New Testament and we read this in Romans 3. I'll paraphrase slightly here to add in the stolen dimension, the, the stealing dimension. But in, in Romans 3 where it says, and I'll paraphrase, all have stolen, all have coveted, and fallen short of the glory of God. So we see the back, background, the law, we see Israel's failings, and then we come to like a statement like that. The law then is it's meant to give way to trust in God. It's, it's meant to give way to faith. It's like staring at Mount Everest and having no training to climb it, but being demanded that we do it. Uh, but then saying, you can do one of two things. You can start and just try, or you can just say, I can't. And you can ask someone else to do it for you. And that, that's where we're supposed to get to. We're not supposed to try. We're supposed to look to him. So remember in Luke 8, I don't have this on screen, but in Luke 18, when Jesus gives this parable where he says there's a religious man and a sinful man, they come to pray at the same time at the temple, and the religious man says, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, but that I do good. And, and, and the sinner's there, and he, the tax collector, the sinful man, and he doesn't say that. He beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Please show me mercy. Have you ever like read that and wondered, well, why didn't the sinful man just start to try and keep the law? And the answer is he knew he couldn't. So he stopped trying and he simply cried out and begged God for forgiveness. And God gave it. And the whole point of the parable is, which one of these two men went home justified? Same word in 1 Timothy 1. The law is not laid down for the just. Remember that? Same word. Who went home justified or made right before God? Which one? And the answer, of course, is the sinful man, not the religious man. The religious man, however, though a law keeper, stayed separated from God in his arrogance. And so it's the same kind of thing. The the law can puff you up or it can bring you low and lead you somewhere else. It's supposed to do the latter. That's why it exists. But the answer goes deeper than this as well because the, the, the next question is, in, in what sense or in what end, though, uh, or to what end does it lead us to him? So a couple more branches off of this question. This is the first one. This is really important to see. But the second way Jesus fulfills this commandment is that he did the opposite of stealing on the cross. He non-stole or he gave his body for us thieves. So what I love about that is the negative do not do this is replaced and fulfilled by this has been done for you. It's done. So in, like in Luke twenty two nineteen, when Jesus says, this is my body given for you. Isn't this amazing? Look at what he says. Jesus said this. Jesus said this to you and to me right now in this very room. This is, this is what he's saying. I've given you something. And he doesn't say, Jesus never re-ups the eighth commandment in his ministry. He never goes all back in on the Ten Commandments, or in this case, the eighth commandment, do not steal. But he does say this. He does say, I've given you my body. I'm, I'm about to shed my blood for you when he's making the New Testament. Galatians 1, 3 to 4, similarly, says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who 
gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. And also in 2 Corinthians 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He's talking about his death. He became poor on the cross. He suffered on the cross. And through his though he was the Son of God and was rich in every sense of the, of the word, he became impoverished for us. He became low. He took on humanity and in that way condescended himself, but he ultimately became poor um, when he finished his ministry, finished his course, he finished his race by being obedient to his father, and that was to die on a cross for sinners and thieves like you and me. One more angle, however, to this. Again, when we ask the question, how does you shall not steal point us to Christ? Uh, the, the ultimate way is that Jesus became a thief for us on the cross. Jesus became a thief. Though he never stole, he became like a thief on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5 says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He became sin for sinners. Substitution, love, sacrifice. Matthew 27 says that when Jesus died, there were two robbers who were crucified with him. Two thieves, two people who made a a life of stealing, common criminals, one on the right side of Jesus and one on the left, which, again, makes him what? It makes him like a thief, like a robber. He's dying with them. He became like them. Isaiah 53, which talks about Christ ahead of time, again, he poured, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with stealers, numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so this is great because it shows us that by being numbered with sinners, he makes intercession for them. Do you see that? The way Jesus stands and bridges the chasm between you and God is he, is he becomes like us and he becomes a transgressor. He was numbered with them. We need this. There's no other way to be saved other than to receive what God has given to us, which is his son, to be pinned to that tree for those six hours. Galatians 4 also, lots of places we could look, but in Galatians 4 it says, God sent his son, born of woman, born under law. Okay, so today that should set off bells in our head because we, we just talked about how we are not under the law, right? We're not under it. But look, Jesus was. He was born under it to redeem those who who are under it. And as Christians, we're no longer under it. But this says we, we are until we're not, until we become saved. Martin Luther, in his commentary on this verse, uh, talks about how this might as well be saying that Jesus was born under the curses of the law. He was born into this heavy burden, this weight of, of on our side of things, unkeepability. Though, though he kept the law perfectly, he was a son of God, he was impeccable or perfect. He was born under it, cursed. He was born under do not steal. Born under the full weight of it. So even though he never stole, he became like a thief for us thieves. And the punishment for stealing is death. All in order to substitute himself for us. This is love. 
And um, though there are other things to say, you guys, I don't know where you're totally at with your Bible reading, how much you've read this before, thought through these questions, but I wanted to give not just an example and kind of teach through this, I want to actually preach this passage and to show that the law has given way to something better. Have you, have you sensed that these past just 30 minutes or so? Have you sensed this? How much farther the Bible goes than simply don't shoplift or else? As if that's Christianity. It's not Christianity. Christianity is not don't shoplift or else. But do you see how we're left with a much more beautiful picture of Jesus' death? Jesus is more beautiful than the law. He's more beautiful. And Jesus' death here rises above a simple but unkeepable moral command to follow. This is where do not steal comes to an end. Right here. This is where do not steal, you shall not steal, comes to an end. This is where the Old Testament comes to an end because this is where Jesus is making a New Testament. He says as much, right? Hours before this. This is my body and blood with communion given for you. It is the New Testament in my blood, the new covenant in my blood. But this is where do not steal comes to an end with a picture of Jesus becoming like a thief on the cross crucified like a common criminal, in shame, naked, despised, and cursed for us. And again, I hope you felt at least a little bit the movement in this sermon from heavy, imprisoning, imposing, condemning law talk to more light, freeing gospel talk. And if you have, the reason is because the focus has come off of you and what you must do and put squarely onto him and what he has done for you. And so the invitation is to receive him there. Not to keep the commandment, do not steal and do not covet, because none of you have. I haven't. We can't. We're too dead in our sins to do it. To circle back to today's big question, um, again, there's a a lot of angles to today's question. Um, I I took today's kind of route, but there are a lot of ways that it could have been done. But to circle back to it and say a few more things uh, in summary here. A Christian can, and again, does, it's impossible not to, acknowledge the goodness of a law or a moralism or a deed. We can say it's wrong to steal. If you have like two options between stealing and not stealing, obviously not stealing is the better route. And usually things go better for us when we take that route. We can acknowledge all of that while still believing Jesus is more beautiful, asking for his help, and that he would actually be the good within us in a way that rote law-keeping could never produce. And so, in that way, Christians are kind of weird. At least we should be. We don't point to a law as much as we point to a bloody cross. We have come to understand, and this is a struggle, but this is a journey thing, but we, we have come to understand, we are coming to understand more and more all the time that only God is good. And so we need to cling to him for transformation rather than try to tap into it uh, ourselves. And, and I think in this, Christians are, are both like, we can be beautiful but also offensive to the world. 
you know, beautiful in that uh, others uh, might see a glimpse of God's love and God's kindness in our love and kindness, especially when we love each other. Jesus says that's when people will know that you're Christians and that will be like an, uh, a moving thing. Not always, but, um, but that will be a, a sign. So beautiful in that, but offended when we say, but love and kindness are not enough. The center of Christianity is not love and kindness. The center is not do not steal. The center is not love and kindness. It's not the most important thing. Jesus' death and resurrection are. We need God to do this or no one would be saved. That's, that's, that's an offensive thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Best news ever that God loved me to that extent and it will never change. But it's offensive to say there's nothing you could do to earn this or reproduce it to turn his head especially towards you, to say I'm, he's doing, as if he's doing this for us because we haven't stolen. That's not the gospel either, to be very clear. He's dying among thieves, for thieves. Not because we haven't been a thief, because we are. It doesn't make any sense otherwise. To put it another way, Christians don't view things in a binary manner all the time. Like, in other words, between do not steal and steal. We view the world, there's not like, when it comes to laws like this, there's not like two options of steal and do not steal all the time. Because if we did that, then we'd be left with this teaching in the Bible that says you're not under the law, and that then would be the same as, well, I guess we're free to steal things now. If there's only two ways, that's, that's what we'd lump together. We're not under law, so I guess we can go steal things now. We can have our cake and eat it too. But as Christians, we view three paths. Do not steal, steal, and Jesus. Jesus is his own path. And the reality is, thieves and non-thieves both need him. Good and bad people both need him for all of sin. In Matthew 7, uh, Jesus has that Amazing teaching. Kind of, it's, kind of, it's a tough teaching, but amazing teaching where he says, on that last day, people will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not deliver demons in your name? Did I not perform miracles in your name? And Jesus says, for many of those people, I will say, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers, into the lake of fire. And so what he's saying there is if, if our posture before him is look what I've done, even doing things in his name. Look, Jesus, how much racial justice I've done in your name. Look, Jesus, how much I haven't stolen in your name. How much I've loved my neighbor and shoveled their walk in the winter of, of the snow in your name. Jesus will look for many people who are not truly saved, but who say that, away from me, evildoer, because we have the third path. Christianity is not be a good person. It's you haven't been and you can't. And so because there's a third way, it's not then therefore saying, well, then I guess we're just free to be bad. It's saying, no, don't take that path either. Take the Christ path. Take the bloody path. Take Jesus. Go there. 
So he calls us away from our badness and our goodness to be with him because salvation's union with him, not working for that 4.0 of moralistic perfection. And it's only his generous, non-stealing love shown us on the cross in the presence of the promised Holy Spirit that only comes by faith, not the law, that will take thievery out of our wicked hearts. It wins us over. There's this idea that we actually will end up becoming less thieves when we focus on him more than we would as if we focused on the, the Eighth Commandment. This came up a couple weeks ago too when I uh, preached on the what is sin question. Well, uh, last week, Aletha was watching, uh, my wife was watching, um, I guess there's a new Les Miserables out there. Is it an episod- episodal thing on Netflix or something? She was watching it. We got talking about it. She was just thinking through some of these things too and she was Reminding me, if you've seen this movie or the play or whatever, that there's, I don't have time to go into all of it uh, today, but there's a thief. The, the thief is the main protagonist, Jean Valjean, and, and he's won over by this priest, not by the law or the police who's chasing him and trying to, I think he broke parole or something, I forgot the story, but he's being chased. Um, the law, represented by the police, are chasing, trying to condemn, trying to re-imprison, but grace is represented by the priest or by the church. Have you guys seen this before? And he wins him back by suffering a bit, by giving him something in this moment where he's about to be arrested, but the priest says, actually, he wasn't trying to rip me off. Here, take these two pieces of silver as well. Really cool moment. Um, But I share this just to say, this is what it means to live by the Spirit and not by the written code. It's to think so much of him there and to be won over... And it's so highly of our sin, but so much more highly of his grace that we're moved, we're changed, we're forgiven. Forgiven people who really feel it don't go out and recommit the same offense, usually to the same person, at least for a while, maybe never, if we really feel the impact of the forgiveness. It, it all, usually forever impacts that relationship, humanly speaking, Right? If you've ever been forgiven, actually forgiven, and you know you wronged someone, if they've forgiven you and let it go and said, I will never bring it up again. I love you. It's okay. I've done the same thing. That, that changes your relationship with them indefinitely. It's even more the case with Christ. You're in my thievery. You're in my propensity to steal and to covet and to worship ourselves. The only way, the only hope we have is the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in our heart. And that comes by faith. The only hope we have is to be moved and wrecked by the objective picture of Christ on the cross outside of us 2,000 years ago. When he, in history, did this, it really happened. And he rose again, defeating death, slaying it in our place. That's the only hope we have, is to be changed by grace from the inside out. And so, so again, the big question today has to do with a lot of things, but there can still be an acknowledgement of right and wrong. There is. We have to live our life. We, we instinctually live our lives this way every day, right? And the law can play a part in that. But it guides rather than comes above us and crushes us. See how under and guide are different. When you think about the law, you have to understand those two things are different and there's a right and a wrong way. Those words are not the same thing. You are not under, if you're a Christian, You're not under the law. If you're not a Christian, yet you are under it. You're under the impossible, the the unkeepability of it. And so you you must, 
The invitation for all of us is to come to the one who never stole, who gave his body for you, and who died as a thief in your place for your propensity to steal hearts. That's the gospel. Believe and you'll be saved. Trust in him and you'll be saved. Come away from your badness and your goodness that was done apart from him. Come away from those two paths and take the Jesus path and believe and you will be saved. And so I just want to leave you guys with a picture of him as we close here, who again, on Friday was a thief for us on the cross. You know that song we sing here? On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king. On Friday, on Good Friday, Jesus was a thief. He became like a thief. On Sunday a king. This is the picture that do not steal leads to. That's the path it takes throughout the the biblical narrative. This is where it, it, it leads us to. Jesus is being crushed by the weight of it here for you and me. And when he rises again, it's a new day. It's a new testament. You're saved by what he did for you. You're saved by the fact he became a human being and died for your, you as a human being and me as a human being in our place. The law can guide us to him, but it's too heavy to live under. But Jesus' yoke, as he says in Matthew 11, Jesus' yoke is easy. His burden is light. Here's something if you haven't read the Bible before. The Bible never says that the law is easy and light. But it does say that about Jesus. Isn't that great? My yoke, so the bearing I have on your life is easy. It's not, it's light. It's kind of like a light garment of righteousness to wear that I give you. It's not heavy. It won't crush you. And so the invitation here, guys, is come to him, weary sinner, with empty hands, and be saved. Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, this question today. Thank you for your word. These are complex questions, difficult to wrestle with. Uh, We are certainly not um, able to fully understand without your spirit. So continue to help us to do that, asking questions, um, learning, having eyes to see and ears to hear. Understanding the Bible is a story, not a random list of proverbs and laws and moralisms, but it's a story. And it moves us from the cold stone tablets of the law to a place where those things kind of disappear in the wake of and at the foot of the cross where the Son of God bleeds in our place and who makes a new testament for us, one built on his body and blood and not on the commandments. God, guide us. Um, live in us, and so we can be good people, but not because we're good, because the Bible says you live within us now and only you are good. And so in that sense, God, uh, make us just, reconcile us with you, and create before us a a path and a life of good deeds and acts of love uh, and, and a way of living that reflects you, because it's only you that can produce those within us. But Jesus, we're just left with this picture of you on the cross. Thank you that on Friday you were a thief, dying among thieves for thieves like us. Classic substitutionary love. Help us to worship you and thank you, God, as we leave here today. In Christ's name, amen.